For the last two to three years, swiping open your phone, logging onto social media has felt a little bit like peeling back the lid on Pandora's box. Fires, floods, pandemics, now war. What new nightmare awaits with every tweet? Well, this week on Download This Show, what can you do to tell truth from fiction in a fast-paced war ready-made for digital consumption? And what are the dangers of that? Plus, digital cryptocurrencies, a lot of people are using them to give to Ukraine. Also, China has decided to back their own cryptocurrency. What does that mean for everyone else? Also on the show, a little adult content warning because we are going to talk about pornography and how banning it from your platform can have the added side effect of completely decimating your business. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fidel and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week from The Guardian, reporter extraordinaire. Sure, why not? Josh Taylor, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. And alongside Josh, we have psychologist and researcher into cyber psychology and the founder of Digital Nutrition, Jocelyn Brewer. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, obviously it's been a very big, very sad uh, week in terms of news, in terms of what's happening in Ukraine, but there is a digital component to it. Um, We're seeing a huge rise of misleading videos uh, about the Russia's invasion of Ukraine spread, particularly over Twitter, Josh. Is this right? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's not that surprising that um, misinformation and disinformation is going along with a massive news event like this, um, in particular because Russia is involved and we know that, um, you know, I mean, Russia, Russia bots on Twitter became a cliche a few years ago already and now we're sort of seeing that, seeing that a bit in action. A lot of... Um, you know, tweets or videos going viral that um, are old, uh, old footage or old vision that that sort of are designed to make it look like it's current events, and I think that's that's where a lot of people are getting tripped up. So um, there's quite a bit of that around. It's one of those things that um, you know everyone has to sort of be wary of, and before they're they're retweeting or, or passing it along. Just doing a bit of due diligence and looking at it and going, mm, is this right? Is this accurate? Jocelyn, how much of the the I guess, misfiled footage and, and images. How much of that do you reckon is intentional and how much of it is just the byproduct of the speed at which information and, and I guess the desire for footage uh, is going at the moment? Look, I think it's a combination because you always have your kind of bad actors out there who are sitting waiting to um, spread disinformation as opposed to some people who really in the heat of the moment and the emotion of like we're on the brink of this big thing, um, it is really just then becomes misinformation where we're sharing the incorrect thing and not having that opportunity to pause and then reconsider some of those bigger kind of issues, which can take several days really if you're going to do your due diligence. It's it's not as quick as, you know, hitting retweet or not hitting retweet and, and having a, a stop and a pause. Josh, we're seeing a lot of this stuff, particularly on Twitter and TikTok. Um, have, have Twitter and TikTok responded? Because this is going to be a kind of an increasing issue as this conflict wears on. Yeah. So um, Twitter's saying that they'll take down misinformation and disinformation where they can. They're, um, you know, uh, limiting sort of the reach of, of, of some of the um, Russian news outlets I've noticed uh, in the past couple of hours. There's, they're saying that they're not going to, or they're going to label um, people who work for, you know, RT as sort of um, Russia-affiliated um, media and things like that. So that's one sort of step. I think that there hasn't really been enough. So I think um, in particular, if you look at some of the, the Russia accounts, um, 
they're still promoting a lot of misinformation themselves, I guess, disinformation themselves um, on Twitter. Uh, I know that Meta has today announced that they're uh, effectively going to not allow RT and other Russian affiliated media to be promoting stuff in on, on their platforms so that they're sort of limiting access within Europe. So there, there are bits and pieces that they're doing, but it's one of those things where, you know, they, they, they should have a lot of practice at this now. They should know what to expect, but it's always too little too late. What do you think, Jocelyn? Has there been a- enough or is it too little too late to you too? Well, it's quite fragmented as well, isn't it? So there are, like, as Josh says, bits and pieces happening, but they don't seem to kind of be working together as seamlessly as by now we would hope them to. So there's things like Birdwatch where you see um, – if you see a particular tweet and it's sus to you that you can actually kind of call it out. So there are some features that are, I guess, user-generated opportunities to say, oh, hold on, this looks a bit sus. But then, like, there's just the ramping up of the ability to moderate really quickly or to train the AI to be more and more intelligent looking at some of those those patterns. So, um, yeah, again, it's it, you would think that there would be a bit more of a strategic plan around some of these things, but it's a it seems like a you know liter- literally let it roll out and see what we do, and and hoping that people are going to you know switch on that prefrontal cortex and and slow down and, and kind of appraise the information before they get too um, knee deep into it. Um, there's a lot of decentralization involved in misinformation and disinformation now. So although, you know, you, we might be going to Twitter or Facebook or TikTok looking for this sort of content, a lot of the time it's being shared in small, you know, private groups or, uh, you know, even old chain email type things or WhatsApp and mm-hmm. things like that, where pe- people who are researching this sort of stuff and looking for this sort of stuff won't immediately see it. You usually end up seeing it when it gets spread onto one of the, the normal the normal platforms we're used to looking at. But it's just so widespread now that it's just sort of hard to get a sort of a, a gauge of how much misinformation is around. I think especially with young people because there's that confusion between what's popular and then what's factful and when you have social media moving so quickly and summing up, you know, huge conflicts in 15 seconds that that then kind of spirals much, much faster obviously too with, with young people who are consuming media and the news through these platforms very differently to, you know, us oldies. This conflict is interesting in a, in a few different ways. And, and obviously, I don't want to take away from the, the really palpable, tangible human loss that's, that's unfolding as well. But there does seem to be a large internet response. And I think maybe because the Ukrainian leader has a, has a background in entertainment. And so there's lots of footage of him as well. But it does feel like it does feel like a lot more of this conflict is ending up online um, and ending up being used as, as as memes, and I suppose you could also argue propaganda as well, more than other co- recent conflicts. Josh, is is that just an impression I'm getting, or is that something you're seeing as well? I think that's probably partially our Eurocentric bias a little mm, bit coming definitely. into it. The, the fact that we're much more attuned to what's going on in Europe than other parts of the world um, in, a, in a similar degree. And I think just because um, so much more of, I guess, Ukraine and Russia is online and, and a lot of the stuff that they do is online. Um, and, and there's so much world focus on that now that... Um, you know, you, you know, you're seeing hacktivist groups siding with Ukraine and, and targeting Russia. Russia mounting sort of a cyber offensive at the same time. So this is this is really a large cyber conflict. But I think it's one that I guess um, the Anglosphere in particular is is much more attuned to than than previous conflicts. Uh, look, I, I think that. Um, there's a combination of what I'm seeing from, you know, the kind of almost very uh, sophisticated deep fakes and some of those sorts of kind of technologies coming out, as well as some of the memes um, as well, which always kind of adds a bit of humour, but also some of the, the resonance, I guess, with, with, again, younger audiences. 
I think too we're a little bit more mature around some of this. So there's not necessarily what I'm not seeing is some of the the slacktivist kind of um, you know quick reshares and solidarity without a little bit more analysis. I think we are kind of maturing a bit with some of those media literacy skills, though long way to go. Do you think generally speaking? having seen a few conflicts unfold online. And and I don't want to, like, when I say see them unfold online, no one's pretending that these aren't horrible, horrific real-world events. But by and large, certainly people in Australia and around the world are experiencing it it online. So I feel like I'm anchoring in the conversation around that. It's because that is, for large part, our our primary access point to to this, this conflict. Do you feel, though, Jocelyn, that people are becoming more sceptical of when uh, when Vision of News is, is being shared? Do you feel like people are relating to it differently to how we would have in the past with previous conflicts? I think that's what I mean, that there is that increase in media literacy and suspicion around can I actually trust this, even if it's coming from, you know, inverted commas, a trusted news source, even what that means these days and the nature of journalism has changed so much. So I think there is sort of some distancing around that because there's so much content you know, just that what we'd call, you know, sometimes infobesity, that huge volume of information and the sources and, and all of the things that are coming through our eyeballs into our brain um, make it sometimes really hard to kind of um, uphold some of that empathy. So we, we get kind of that um, vicarious burnout um, from experiencing it and we sometimes can risk switching off from, you know, again, that trusted source of information. Are you sensing a change, Josh, in terms of how people, are, you know, particularly who are experiencing this online, as, as most Australians are at the moment, um, do you sense a change in, in how people are interacting with that that sort of onslaught of news coming from Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's, it's interesting that I think this is probably maybe a little bit of a byproduct of, of what Russia has been doing um, online for quite a few years now, you know, we, we saw what happened in the in the uh, U.S. election in 2016. If you if you sow that uh, seed of, of misinformation and disinformation online, where where people feel like they can't trust what they're reading all the time, and a lot of that stemmed from the stuff that Russia was doing during the election, you know, that has flow-on effects to other parts of the world, including Australia, and and now we're seeing, I guess, the fruits of it, where people just are a bit distrusting a bit more of what they're seeing online. And I think that that is partially a good thing. People should be sceptical of this sort of thing. But I think this, this is sort of the thing that, that Putin was sort of aiming for when, when you know, he, he's targeting the US and, and other Western countries in terms of the, the misinformation, disinformation campaigns they, they run. And I guess the other side to this is we're seeing reports, uh, Jocelyn, that Russia itself has limited access to Twitter and parts of the nation. What do you think that tells you about how the, the Russian government view that platform? Well, I think it plays into the fact that they're not really into democracy and freedom of speech, right? Because that's the platform where you can get voices, hear the voices and respond to those. So, you know, that to me is in line with what Russia's all about, um, restrict, especially when you're ne- not necessarily winning the uh, arm wrestle, digitally speaking, in terms of some of the, those messages that are getting out and, and the dissenting voices, which we're, you know, seeing on the streets of St. Petersburg and things like that. Josh, Russia's argument for censoring some of these online platforms is that it was uh, violating the rights and freedoms of Russian citizens. Is there a sense of what they actually mean by that? <laughs> um, it's it's funny, they, they complained uh, to Meta because Meta was fact-checking a lot of um, Russian media content and they thought that that was impacting on their freedom. And that's, it's funny that that's a very similar line to what um, conservatives usually mount against Meta, basically saying, you know, we're, we're, our freedom of speech is being curtailed because we're being fact-checked and we're having these warnings placed over our, our content. I don't particularly buy it. I think it's interesting, though, that um, from what from what I've heard from reports and things like that, 
Russian TV still is predominantly where a lot of Russian people get their news from, and obviously Putin has control over that. Uh, so you can see why social media, you know, for for better or for worse, is where a lot of people can find a lot more, a lot wider information that, that the government is maybe not telling them. So I can see that that's why they're probably wanting to restrict it and and maybe limit their access and not make it easy for Russians to see some of the footage and, and, and vision of what's going on in Ukraine right now. Jocelyn, it's a, been a very hard couple of years in terms of news consumption for people. There was fires, pandemic, mm. floods in many parts of Australia at the moment, plus the augur of a very serious war unfolding nightly on the news and, and online all the time. If people are feeling overwhelmed by mm-hmm. particularly this story, but I guess the compound effect of the last few years, what's a good strategy of navigating the seemingly never-ending bad news day that we've been living through for close to two and a half years. Yeah, absolutely. I like to stop swap my doom scrolling for hope scrolling. So I guess this is an opportunity to maybe tune out of some of the, the big news outlets and, and some of the bad news and look for different sources of information and maybe connect with your friends and their what they're posting. And we're, I guess, getting back to some face-to-face connection as well. So using social media to, to set up the good old face-to-face and, and the event function where we can actually go and meet maybe. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's so much information out there and it has been really hectic. So just kind of resetting your feed can be quite helpful because there is some beautiful stories out there in amongst the, the big, big, big headlines, which don't forget, you know, the whole nature of media is to get you to click on those and have some ads shown into your eyeballs. Can I ask a question? And I'm not asking for free psychological advice on the air here, but mm-hmm. um, sometimes I feel like when we're advised and totally understand why this advice is given, when we're advised to turn away, I I, part of me feels guilty that I'm turning away from something that I have the privilege of turning away from where people, the people of Ukraine don't have an option to turn away. And I feel somewhat guilty when I log off of some of those news stories because it's a privilege that I, I can, right? And there's a sort of a weird associated guilt that comes with, with that. <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> and, I, and I think it's, it's not so much about turning away and putting your head in the sand. It's about turning towards other people and having conversations about, what's going on and what that means to you. And this sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, but it's it's about your values and it's about the actions that you take in response to what you see. So, you know, there's no point necessarily filling your brain with every story about all of the bad things that are going on, but finding the best sources of information and the, you know, supporting those outlets that can provide that and then turning your actions towards something that's going to make a difference at whatever degree that you can. So that might be your kids making a small donation, you having different conversations around the dinner table and helping kids understand what war is about. Um, I think that's a big one for parents at the moment is like, gosh, how do we talk about this again? Um, And building those skills around, um, as I say, not turning away, but turning towards other people. So, you know, even in the community that I live here um, in near Lidcombe in, in Sydney, huge Ukrainian community um, and how we actually support each other and do different things to, to kind of, yeah, connect. Josh, you're a guy that lives lo- online a lot. Um, how do you navigate the seemingly never-ending news day that, that we've sort of been faced <laughs> with for the last couple of years? Well, unfortunately, I'm terminally online and I, I can't escape it uh, for much of the time thanks to my job. But um, I think, oh, I was thinking about this uh, and I think that the phenomenon of like Wordle and, and those sorts of things are basically a byproduct of, of needing to have some sort of 
I guess, escape from the news cycle. Like a lot of people I know uh, do Wordle as their first thing in the morning, whereas, you know, previous to that, it would have been, um, you know, doom scrolling straight away. So I think that th that is like something that you can do that's that's quick, takes your mind off things. There's community built around it and it just is a, a form of escapism. It's a, it's a little bit trite, but like I think that, that that sort of thing where people just have a moment of escape is really good. Look, I love Wordle because it's not something that you can play all day, right? It's something that's a, a short win. There's some literacy in there. There's all those wonderful spin-offs and then there's the ego um, kind of rush of posting it, being the first person to post it on Twitter. It's the new miracle morning, right? How many, how quickly you can get your wordle out. Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, uh, psychologist Jocelyn Brewer and reporter with The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Mark Fennell is my name. Staying uh, with, I guess, in a manner of speaking, the, the Ukraine story. Uh, Josh, we're seeing millions of Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency pouring into Ukraine from donors. Why has Bitcoin proven to be uh, a currency with which people are prepared to give? I mean, that's not to suggest that comes at the exclusion of others. We know people are giving in other currencies as well. But why has there been a particular fascination for cryptocurrencies? Well, I think it's just probably the easiest way for a lot of people online to actually give money because it, it's one of those things where uh, I guess um, you can see that the, where the money's going, you're, you're not worried about putting into some sort of dodgy um you know wire transfer type system um and the the ukrainian government has actually called for donations in, in cryptocurrency as well so i think that that you know if, if people are presented with a way of doing it then they that's the most obvious way of doing it so i'm, I'm not super surprised particularly considering how much you know we see millions being transferred around in, in cryptocurrency every day for pictures of apes so it, it's not that surprising that, that a lot of money has gone to ukraine over the past couple of weeks or the past week i guess is it a trust thing because we know that you know currencies are i mean this is the irony like like fiat currencies are, go, are going up and down a lot at the moment in particularly that part of the world as sanctions and people rushing to get money out of uh, ATMs and whatnot. But is there a sense that perhaps some people think that because cryptocurrencies are slightly removed from that equation that they're, that they're more reliable, even though we know that most cryptocurrencies are sort of fluctuate wildly, Jocelyn? Do you think that's what the underlying kind of thought process is? I would really like to understand the underlying thought process because <laughs> I don't understand how you get your crypto out. Like when we talk about trust issues and like can we, even if I'm donating to, you know, apart from obvious things like UNHCR and, and really recognised charities, how do I know that, that my crypto is going to come out the other end and actually support the people that I'm hoping it would? That's the bit where I'm a little bit confused, and you know, obviously, I don't, I, I don't have any crypto to to share. So, is that a better way? Should I actually set up a crypto account in order to donate in a better way? They're the kind of things that have been rolling around my head in in relation to that. But I, I think, yeah, it's uh, Josh, do you want to give some sorry. not financial advice? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think it's partially because um, cryptocurrency is not tied to any particular government or anything like that. So people feel like that they it's not going to be used in one way or the other. I think the other interesting thing that the other component that's that you were not we've not mentioned yet is the fact that um, cryptocurrency exchanges at the moment are refusing to block uh, Russian and uh, uh, well uh, Russian and Belarusian addresses, even though um, the Ukrainian government has called for them to do that. So uh, that means that people can still send money into Russia and, and um, 
its its allies, and um, so that that's the other component. The the exchanges have argued that that it means if they were to do this, then it kind of goes against their sort of libertarian morals. You know, they're they're standing back from everything that crypto stands for, and I think that's that's the other side of the the ledger on this particular discussion that you know although it's great that we're seeing all this money flow into the ukraine it's still a very open sort of um system that money can be flow in other directions as well staying on the elaborate and confusing world of cryptocurrencies uh interestingly china has taken an unprecedented step and is in effect josh launching an official cryptocurrency walk me through exactly what's happened here the chinese government has said it um wants a company to purchase and market its new core uh, coin, which is the Yuanpei Group, um, and the coins can only be purchased from this group. Uh, and uh, thankfully, Australia is one of the first places people can buy. Um, they've said that the starting price will only be about one cent. Um, around thirteen thousand coins can be bought for about four hundred Australian dollars. This this is an interesting. I don't know. It's one of those things. You know, cryptocurrency is. You know, as we were saying earlier. Uh, supposed to be somewhat detached from governments. Uh, and I guess it's not surprising that uh, we would see China maybe look at having a sort of government-based cryptocurrency because they don't they want to maintain some sort of control over it. And to be fair, Australia is looking at, it, at what we can do with cryptocurrency as well. So it, it's interesting, but I don't know. <laughs> I, as with anything with cryptocurrency, there's so much hype around all this sort of stuff. So I don't know how, how much to read into what they're doing and whether people are going to be worried about what they're doing. Yeah, look, again, this seems kind of weird to me. Like, do you just have one because everyone else has one? Like you have you have stamps or you collect basketball cards or all of those kinds of things, except this is the thing that people are collecting. So we want to be able to have our own and then put our own kind of, you know, rally people through and say get, get our version of this particular coin. Like that's mm. what it strikes me it's kind of been because there are so many out there. Just... The, I guess the, the big thing is that... Um, Cryptocurrency brings with it uh, anonymization of, of payments and things like that. And if a government-run um, cryptocurrency is around, that there won't be that on, anonymization. The, the Chinese government will know exactly where all the payments are going. So, I can that's the appeal for the Chinese government. But whether people actually want to have that happen is another thing entirely. The question really comes down to: Does the does the backing, for lack of a better word, of a huge nation like China, guarantee some outcome? Yeah, I think we just have to sort of wait and see how it goes. I think, as with everything with um, cryptocurrency at the moment, it's it's all it's hyper speculative. It's it's very hard to sort of determine where it's going. I think things haven't quite landed. Uh, you know, there'll always be a place I think for for blockchain and, and things like that and cryptocurrency, but we haven't just quite figured it out yet. And I think the the fact that we're getting to the stage now where governments are trying this out kind of things that we're, we're it's maturing the market is maturing a lot but um you know as you've seen like the the price of bitcoin fluctuates so much over recent months like um it, it, there's still a long way to go i think mm. download this show is what you're listening to it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture and there's been an interesting story out of the US. Uh, Tumblr was a blogging service very famous for image sharing that uh, made some changes to what they could, what users could post in terms of uh, sexually explicit material, which has now come again, up against uh, a human rights commission in New York. Josh, this is a fascinating story, but let's maybe start at the beginning. What was the decision made at the beginning uh, that started this story? So a few years ago, I think I think it was when um, Tumblr was taken over by I think it was Verizon. Um, they uh, 
basically banned at that at the time Tumblr was basically where a lot of people looked at porn for lack of a better term and um when when that takeover happened they basically removed all the porn from the platform and then instituted a very sort of uh family friendly um you know gpg rated uh content system and and implemented algorithms and stuff to detect um nudity and and sexually explicit material on its platform and uh since then you know a lot of people left tumblr now the tumblr is not what it was back then um but a lot of people have felt that this change had a disproportionate impact on lgbtq people you know um and trans users and sex workers and everything like that so the new york commission on human rights settled with tumblr basically requiring them to um train moderators on you know how what might be offensive to one per, one user isn't the same as as another user and and um basically have a bit more of a, a think about what should be allowed online and what shouldn't be it was just such a progressive community it had um i guess within the kind of sex positive and kind of healthy porn debate it just kind of gave a lot more um i guess meaning and humanity to um exploration of adult material rather than some of the mainstream kind of porn sites and and the content that you find there. So um, I know that there's some Australian academics who have written a fantastic book all about this um, called, funnily enough, Tumblr. Um, and, and they talk about like all of the different communities and how it, you know, really supported and, uh, you know, um, basically teaching sex ed and consent in lieu of there being really any good education um, around this at the time in, you know, 10 years ago um, on these sorts of issues. So it was such a fascinating time. I mean, Tumblr 10 years ago was a very interesting place to be. Kind of plays into the whole free speech debate in terms of uh, what role we see the platforms playing in in regulating speech online because um, a lot of the people who complain about their views being censored online are also the people who argue that um, you know porn should be banned from the internet, adult content should not be online, and things like that. And so while they're um, wanting their own form of, of expression to be available online, they're they're trying to silence other forms of expression at the same time. There is a lot of content that deals with sex online and some of it is is problematic, does need to be addressed, and some of it is simply part of people's uh, lives. And I think working out where that line is seems to be, a, I, I guess from my point of view, it seems like it's a struggle for regulators and corporations um, to, to, to navigate. And in this case, it seems like um, a decision might have well been the beginning of the end for, for Tumblr. Yeah, I, I think um, it's important that governments are still quite grappling with this as well. You know, the Australian content system, for example, hasn't been updated since the VCR days. So you have a situation where child exploitation material, which everyone agrees should not be online, people should be prosecuted for it and things like that, is classified in the same brand of content as fetish material online. And there's no sort of distinguishing between those two sorts of things. And the e-safety commissioner, who, who now has a role sort of adjudicating what can be allowed online, um, has said she won't go after adult content. In particular, she's focused more on the child exploitation material. But the rules are there that if she finds material that she believes fits that category, it has to be taken down. Fifty Shades of Grey when it comes to this kind of material, I guess, is the, the thing there from softcore to the really tricky, tricky um, exploitation material that needs to come down. Yeah. 
And that is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Jocelyn Brewer, psychologist, researcher in cyberpsychology and the founder of Digital Nutrition. Thanks so much for coming on and downloading this show this week. Thanks, Mark. And Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Thank you again. It's been great. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.